and take your Bibles and turn them with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. Uh, this, is a, this is a bittersweet moment, uh, but hopefully more sweet than bitter as we come to the conclusion of a sermon series that we began a long time ago, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. I remember I preached the opening sermon in this series in 2012. Wow. And over six years later, we've taken some breaks, you know, from now and then, and, and have gone off to other books of the Bible. We've always come back to this one. And, and over six years later, we, we've reached the conclusion, and uh, God willing, we'll re- resume a new series uh, next week, which um, uh, you'll hear more about in the next couple of days. But for now, uh, one more time, let's enter into John's Gospel. We come to chapter 21. Uh, which is an unexpected chapter because it seems like the previous chapter would have been the logical place to end the book of John, right? Jesus has rose from the dead. He's commissioned the disciples for service. Uh, And then you get to that climactic scene that we looked at last week where doubting Thomas confesses with his mouth what the Apostle John has been trying to show us all along in this book, that Jesus Christ is both Lord and God. And finally, John closes the chapter with these comments in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. And you would expect then that that would be it. Uh, the, the screen would go black, the credits would roll, and we would start like cheering and applauding. That would just be a, a fitting and wonderful way to conclude this gospel. But he doesn't finish it here. Uh, we have here in chapter 21 what is essentially a bonus chapter, bonus content for this story. It's an epilogue. Yes, Jesus has died. Yes, Jesus is written. Chapter 20 ends with this sense of glory and triumph, but the story is not over yet. Jesus has something more to tell you in chapter 21. So let's find out what he has to say. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our great and glorious God. John chapter 21, we will look at the entire chapter. Word of God says, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus uh, said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, uh, therefore, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had stripped for work, 
and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in uh, the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come, and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, uh, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? you follow me. So the saying spread among the, the brothers that the disciple would, this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray once again that in the gospel of John, you would help us to see and savor Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Hypocrite. Failure loser, fake. Have you ever had those words flood into your mind about yourself? Ever consider yourself such a massive spiritual failure that there is no point in even hoping that you could be used by God to glorify Him and further His purpose and His mission in the world that perhaps you're disqualified? If you struggle with those kinds of thoughts, 
I am really glad that you're here this morning because John 21 gives us good news for great failures. And what he shows us is more than a mere reunion between the resurrected Jesus and his disciples. More than a reunion, Jesus uh, gives a revelation. That's the first thing that I want us to consider in this text today is Jesus' revelation to His disciples. Verse 1, it says, after this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and He revealed Himself in this way. Uh, Some of your translations may say that Jesus appeared, uh, but the word is is more literally rendered revealed or manifested. I think John is, is saying something more than just Jesus showed up. Instead, this continues an ongoing emphasis of the Apostle John regarding Jesus as the one who reveals, the one who reveals truth, the one who reveals God. And despite the climactic ending of chapter 20, is as if John is saying, I'm not finished telling you about how great and wonderful and glorious Jesus is. There's one more thing I need to tell you about, one more revelation, one more manifestation of His glory. There are still some loose ends to tie up and resolve some hanging questions that need to be confronted and addressed in light of the past few chapters. Questions like, what about these disciples? What about these men who have failed Christ, who had so disappointed Jesus in the final hours of, his, of Jesus' life? These men who disbelieved Jesus, uh, who were more interested in saving their own skins than in standing by Christ, these, these men who had sunk about as, as spiritually low as you can sink, who deserted and abandoned Jesus and in Jesus' darkest hour. Jesus, in chapter 21, comes now to deal with these hypocrites and failures. And as we watch how He deals with these men, something more of Christ's glory and beauty is revealed, and it should give hypocrites and failures in this room and behind this pulpit great hope. Again, verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed Himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and He revealed Himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of His disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to Him, we'll go with you. Now, remember, several of these men were fishermen by trade, so this would have been a very natural thing for them to do. Uh, There's some speculation about what's exactly going on here. Are they reviving their fishing business? They're they're just not sure what to do next? Uh, Were they simply just trying to find food for their next meal? Uh, Were were they, as some suggest, in a demoralized and discouraged condition due to their past failures to the point that they're not even in the right mindset now to go about and continue Jesus' mission? We're not told by John exactly what's happening here. And I don't think John wants us to spend too much time concerning ourselves, speculating about that question as much as he wants us to consider what follows. The fishing trip is ultimately an occasion for another revelation of Jesus to his disciples. And so it says in verse 3, they they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast it in, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the great quantity of fish. And it is in this moment 
that the light bulb goes off in one of the disciples' minds. Uh, Verse 7 refers to this man as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John. That's the author of this book. And there's something about this incident uh, with an abundant provision of fish that seems to jog John's understanding. And surely in that moment, he must have recalled another incident that happened three years before, recorded in Luke chapter 5. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, where Jesus first calls Peter and John to be his disciples, uh, where they were fishing all night in vain, and Jesus comes and tells them to let down their nets in a certain spot, and they do, and they enclose so many fish that their nets were breaking. And now fast forward three years to John 21. It doesn't take a rocket science scientist to know what's going on. John's not a rocket scientist. He just can tell what's happening. And I think because of what happened before, things have come full circle. They've gone back to the boat, back to their fishing gear, back to doing what they're so accustomed to doing before they even ever heard of Jesus. They've toiled all night, just like before. A man gives them instructions about letting down their nets, just like before. They obey the man, just like before. There's an incredible, abundant uh, amount of fish, just like before. And John realizes in that moment that the man on the beach must be Jesus. Duh! That's pretty obvious. It's just Jesus, just like before. And so John cries out in verse 7, It is the Lord! And I love Peter. Peter is always the impulsive one, the emotional one. And and, and he jumps in. They're only 100 yards away. But he jumps into the water. He can't even wait to get to shore. To see Jesus, that's very much in keeping with what we know about Peter. I think it's funny that it says he puts on his clothes before he goes into the water, but whatever. Um, And so, but here we see another revelation of the wonderful, powerful, sovereign glory of Christ controlling even the forces of nature. But this miracle of the fish is not just a revelation of Jesus' power, It's also the occasion of Jesus' recommissioning of His disciples. In Luke chapter 5, again, three years prior to this, when Jesus gave them an abundance of fish, it was meant to be a graphic visual parable. It was meant to be an illustration of their mission. And so, after that, Jesus tells them in Luke 5.10, don't be afraid, from now on, you will be catching men. You'll be fishers of men. So Jesus had, in the beginning, commissioned these men for service and illustrated that with an abundant catch of fish. And now, before Jesus ascends to heaven, Jesus recommissions them for service with exactly the same kind of miracle. It's Jesus' way of saying, I know you failed, I know you've done wrong, I know you've sinned greatly, but that doesn't mean I'm finished with you. There's still work to do. The mission hasn't changed. Your calling hasn't changed. There are still men to catch and save for my kingdom, and I'm going to use you to do it. What a beautiful message that is, especially to those of us who know what it's like to feel like such a failure and that we are just unusable by God because of our failures, because of our weaknesses. Jesus wasn't repelled and scared off by their sin and by their dysfunction and by their imperfection. 
As a matter of fact, Jesus specializes in taking failures and using them for His glorious purposes. Failures take heart. Any failures in the house? Just Deemer. Okay, there's a couple of others of you out there. <laughs> he specializes in that. If you're a failure, you are totally qualified to be used by Jesus for his purposes. As fish after fish after fish after fish after fish swam into the net, it was as if Jesus was saying, You're still mine. I still have a purpose for you, and even more, that purpose will be accomplished. I I don't want to read too much into this, but it is interesting that this time the net didn't break. (laughs) I don't know if that means anything. He says, my purpose will be accomplished through you. But notice how it will be accomplished It will not be accomplished through the mere strength and skill and efforts of these disciples. Look at the end of verse 3. What were the disciples able to catch through their own efforts? They went out, got into the boat. That night, they caught nothing. Some of you have fished, and you know what that's like. You know the frustration of being out there for hours, and you've got nothing to show for it. That's what these guys are experiencing. And now that they know that they have failed now that their efforts have been spent with nothing to show for it, they are now ready to hear the voice of the Master and try His way instead. And when they do that, when they are in obedience to Him, there's not just success, but there's success in abundance. And what Jesus does with this catch of fish underscores what Jesus taught them not long before in John chapter 15, where he said to them, apart from me, you can do nothing. This is the significant lesson that Jesus is teaching these disciples in the boat, and it's frankly a lesson that we all need to learn for ourselves. We all say without Christ we can do nothing, but sometimes what we mean is we can't do really hard things apart from Christ, big things. But of course, there are little things that we can handle, right? There's little things that we can do. Now, how often do do we do that? How often do we feel that way, that there are some things that we can do apart from Christ? How, how How do I know this, that we think this way? I know this because of how often our Bibles are unopened and how empty our prayer closets are. For as long as I've been in ministry, one of the biggest struggles of the Christian is praying and spending meaningful, thoughtful time in His Word. When we go one, two, three, four days, one week without being on our knees in prayer, without reading God's Word, without meditating on His truths and having them sink deep into our hearts, listening to Jesus through His Word, because we've got places to go and people to see and kids to shuttle and jobs to get to and classes to get to. And when we live that way, what are we really saying? I know what I'm saying when I do that. I'm saying I can make it right now. And I can go through my day doing whatever I'm going to do. 
and whatever I'm going to do today, by the way, I'm supposed to be doing for the glory of God, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 31, everything that you do, do for the glory of God. And all of these things that I'm supposed to be doing for the glory of God, eating, drinking, working, parenting, it's okay that I'm going into these endeavors without any sort of communion with Christ because apart from Him, I can do something, right? All I'm doing today is running errands, doing chores, taking my kids to soccer practice. That's all I'm doing today. I can do that just fine. Can't I? What Simon, what Jesus is teaching Simon Peter and the others was without Christ, we cannot even do what we think we can do for God's glory. You see, the, fishing was one thing that Simon Peter could do, right? Uh, there was a lot that he couldn't do. We know he wasn't a good swordsman from a few chapters back when he cut off that dude's ear, missed the head, got the ear. Can't do that. A lot of things he can't do. But one thing he can do is fish. That's been his job. That's been his livelihood. That's been his business. He can do that, can't he? But Jesus wants to show Peter and us that dependence on Christ is not just for those 85% of things that you are not very good at or for those spiritual things that you obviously can't do, but if you're going to live as a child of God, If you're going to live as a disciple of Christ, as his servant, you must learn to be dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ every minute of every day for everything that you do for him. Whether you're a preacher in the pulpit, or a parent at home, or a professional in the office, there is no way we can be successful in glorifying God in any of these arenas without his help, because apart from him, we can do nothing. To neglect prayer, to neglect listening to the voice of Jesus as you read the Bible, to neglect spiritual disciplines that get you closer to God and more in tune with Him, to neglect those things is like having your nets on the wrong side of the boat all night. You'll accomplish nothing. Don't fool yourselves. But to listen to Jesus through the Scriptures, to commune with Him through prayer, to rely on Him as the source of strength. That's like getting back in step with Jesus and in step with His Word and getting your net on the right side of the boat. And when that happens, much can be accomplished because with God, all things are possible. I wonder, where have your nets been lately? On what side of the boat have you been fishing on? That's worthy of reflection. I'll leave that between you and the Lord. Peter learns this lesson because weeks later, empowered by the Holy Spirit, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, he preaches his first sermon ever. And thousands of people receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, like fish jumping into the net. God uses Peter to cast out a big, wide gospel net and draw these men and women out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of Christ. So friends, whatever success we experience and whatever God has called us to do, we experience it not through our own strength and not through our own efforts. It's His strength working through us because apart from Him, we can do nothing. So, we've seen Jesus' revelation here. Uh, We see Jesus recommissioning 
More, though, we also see Jesus' reconciliation with His disciples. Look at verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. There's been a lot of speculation about that number, 153. Ooh, what does that mean? People trying to pick that apart, do a little numerology and figure things out. You know what I think it means? I think it means there was 153 fish in that net. I just blew your mind, didn't I? And Jesus invites them and he says, come, come, have breakfast. We really see something here of the beautiful graciousness of Jesus, don't we? Remember, this scene is against the backdrop of uh, of these disciples blowing it big time failing Jesus, deserting and abandoning Him right before the cross. And, and when the disciples get to shore, Jesus doesn't scold them. Jesus doesn't berate them. Instead, Jesus serves them breakfast. You know, He was, he was so good to them in, in chapter 20 when he, when he showed up after He rose and didn't come to them with a whip then. And, and still, even though Jesus has had more time to think about it, He's still good to them. He's still kind to them. He's still gracious to them. No grudges here. He serves them breakfast. Is not Jesus amazing? And is He not so much better than you and I? Forget about somebody deserting us or abandoning us in time of great need. Set that aside for a second. If somebody just snubs us, or looks at us the wrong way in church, or irritates us just a bit, what do we do? We rage against that person, and we separate ourselves from that person, and we hold a grudge against that person. Often the very last thing we think of when Jesus offends us is, how can I, or when people, Jesus never offends us, when people offend us, the last thing we think about is, well, how can I serve that person? Is that your instinct? When somebody offends you, how can I serve that person? How can I show grace to that person? That's what Jesus does here, though. And and the point of this is not simply that Jesus is being nice. In that day, in, in that culture, for people to sit around the table together, for people to share a meal together, communicated a sense of brotherly fellowship. It It conveyed the message of family, of of closeness, of communion, of friendship, of acceptance. We're about to have a a fellowship meal picnic here in in a little while. We even today understand a little bit of this. And I was telling our uh, the group in Sunday school during our time of corporate prayer. I I told them to pray for our fellowship meal uh, coming up because there's a theological reason why we do this. It's not just to fill our bellies or whatever, Uh, but we believe that there is something about brothers and sisters in the same church sitting down, sitting next to one another, and breaking bread with one another. So we understand something uh, about this. Uh, To refuse to eat with someone uh, communicates something else altogether, doesn't it? 
Jesus is communicating to these men friendship, family, communion, closeness, acceptance. That's how Jesus is. He's doing this to these men who have failed Him and broken His heart. When somebody offends us, we have a tendency to write that person off or at least withdraw from that person until they, maybe until they come and, you know, beg for our forgiveness or something. Uh, When they come to me and tell me why they were wrong, then I'll receive them. And and we especially dig in our heels when we think we have done nothing wrong, and and they have, and we just kind of sit back passively and refuse to take any kind of initiative and reconciliation. Jesus uh, does something different here. He doesn't wait for them. Jesus takes the initiative in building this relationship, restoring this relationship, making things right. He pursues them. He's done, he's done nothing wrong. Indeed, he, he has been wronged. But he's the one that's aggressively looking to make things right. And the desire to fellowship with them over a meal is a sign to them of open arms and intimate friendship. If you're here this morning as a believer, but perhaps you have strayed, perhaps, you've, perhaps you have done wrong, and you're ashamed, and you're embarrassed, and you feel distant from God, what you need to know, my friend, is that God's attitude towards you this morning is not one of vengeance. God is pursuing you, but He's not pursuing you like Zeus with the lightning bolts, ready to fry you. And I'm concerned some Christians think about God that way, in their relationship with the one that is supposed to be their good heavenly Father that way. No, no, no. God is pursuing you to restore and mend that damaged relationship. I think of Psalm 23, the famous shepherd psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, and at the end of it, David says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And that word follow there in the original language really is pretty intense. It's like pursue Goodness and mercy will pursue me. God is all over me. Won't let me go. In Revelation 3.20, Jesus has beautiful words for Christians that have strayed from him. Have you strayed from Jesus? I want you to hear what Jesus says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. Some of you in this room need to hear those words and take them to heart, because you have, in your own life, distanced yourself from Jesus, and you're not living for him like you should. You once had close fellowship with Jesus, but now, for whatever reason, it's grown cold. But though you have stepped back from Jesus… Jesus is stepping towards you. He's at the very doorstep knocking. He wants to come back inside the home of your heart with a fellowship so close it's described as sitting at a table and sharing a meal with Him. If you're a Christian who needs some help and some encouragement opening up that door, I'd love for you to let me know so I can pray for you so I can pray with you, perhaps even meet with you sometime and talk with you about that. I, I, I know that there's other brothers and sisters here who would love to do that same thing for you as well. And we want to do everything that we can to help you to 
get into a better place with your relationship with God and mend that relationship. That's what's going on here in John 21 between Jesus and these disciples. A relationship is being restored, being mended. Fellowship's being restored. Jesus comes to them not with a whip, but with fish. He says, come, sit down, have breakfast. So Jesus has reunited with these disciples. He's recommissioned them to be fishers of men. He's reminded them that he will supply the power they need to accomplish their mission. He's reinstated fellowship over a meal together. This, and this would be a wonderful place for the story to end and the credits to roll. But John's not done yet. It's kind of like at the end of the Return of the King movie, the extended version, and there's like 20 endings. <laughs> you think it's going to end now, and it doesn't? This keeps going, and it keeps, it keeps getting better. There is one more piece of unfinished business, and that is Jesus' restoration Whoops, restoration of his disciple. I meant to say disciple singular here, not plural. Because while Jesus has restored the disciples as a group and given them assurance of his love and forgiveness, there is one more personal act of reconciliation and restoration that needs to happen. And so now the focus of the narrative narrows to Jesus and Peter. That's why I say my last point should be disciple singular, not plural. We're narrowing the focus here now to these two men. And we find them walking along the beach. We know that because verse 20 mentions that John is following them, but he's hanging back a bit. So I'm guessing that as that fish breakfast was winding down, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Let's take a walk. And this was probably a moment that Peter both looked forward to and dreaded for a long time. John, I believe in verse 9, has already tipped his hand a bit in regards to where the story is headed. And and he's showing us what he wants us to have in mind because verse 9 tells us that they were there on the beach and on the beach was a charcoal fire. It almost seems like an incidental detail, kind of like the 153 fish. But contextually, though, I don't think so. You know, there's only one other place in the entire New Testament where a charcoal fire is mentioned. Just one other place besides here. And you know, it just happens to be in the book of John. And it just happens to be not long before this incident. And chapter 18. Flash back there with me to chapter 18. This is right after Jesus is arrested and taken to be questioned by the high priest, and right before Jesus' crucifixion. There was, John tells us, as, as Peter came near and followed Jesus, uh, a moment here that happens. And he goes into the area of the high priest's residence. And look at verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now, the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire. 
because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves, Peter also with them, standing and warming himself. Verse 25, they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I'm not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. At once, a rooster crowed. The other gospel records tell us that in that moment he looked up and he saw Jesus standing nearby, looking right back at him. And Peter wept bitterly. Peter, after boasting earlier that evening of his love and devotion for Jesus, after all that, he fails to love Jesus. And this was Peter's last face-to-face moment with Jesus before Jesus was killed. Can you, can you imagine that? That's the last time you see him before he goes to his cross. Jesus is looking at you in the middle of betraying him. You can imagine how heavy this must have weighed on Peter's heart, that in the midst of Jesus' darkest hour, Peter had not just denied him once, but three times. And Peter now, in John 20, finds himself once more around a charcoal fire. We've come full circle. We've come full circle, and the penetrating gaze of Jesus is upon him once more. And once more, the hanging question is about Peter's love for Jesus. But Jesus has not come to condemn Peter, but to, like a spiritual surgeon, do heart work on this struggling disciple. And it would be painful, but it would, in the end, lead to Peter's restoration and Peter's confidence that he had been fully forgiven. Yes, it would be painful. Isn't it interesting that as they were sitting around that charcoal fire, Jesus didn't just lean over and say, hey, 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 Peter, that thing you did, it's all good. Shh. I I died on the cross after all, so let's just forget about it and pretend it never happened. No. Instead, Jesus takes him aside privately. Yes, Jesus' death on the cross had paid the price for Peter's sin, but there is still a, a personal restoration between Jesus and Peter that needs to happen before Peter can fully enjoy the forgiveness that he has before the joy of his salvation can be restored. And this process is not rushed. It's not hurried. You know, sometimes you and I, when we sin, we are so eager to enjoy forgiveness and to have relationships restored that we want to rush past the work that must be done in our hearts. Uh, We want to rush past uh, that that process of, of working on the things in our hearts that got us to fall so far in the first place. We, we rush past that because it's painful to be confronted with our own sin. Friends, Jesus is more eager for restoration than you are. And yet in His wisdom, He knows that first work must be done on the heart. And that's what Jesus, I believe, is doing here with Peter. Uh, painful but necessary heart work. He, he's Jesus is not drudging things up here to be mean, to to rub his nose into something. Jesus has a point 
and what's going on. Three times Jesus questions Peter. In fact, Jesus calls Peter Simon. You know, Jesus had once said to him, you are Simon, son of John, but you will be Peter. You will be the rock. And here in John 21, on the beach, Jesus goes back to calling him Simon. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is taking him back to where they began, back to where Peter was was first consecrated and set apart in a special way by Jesus. And he questions Peter three times about his love for Jesus. Verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now that's an interesting question, isn't it? Jesus asks Peter not simply, do you love me, but do you love me more than these, these other disciples? Why would he do that? He would do that because only a few hours before Peter's devastating denial of Jesus, Peter was not only boasting that he would never deny Jesus, but he was also declaring his love and loyalty for Jesus above that of his fellow disciples. In Matthew 26, after Jesus predicts that all of his disciples will scatter and abandon him, Peter says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then Peter digs in his heels, and he says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter, in that moment, throws all of the other disciples under the bus and says, I am better than these others. I am stronger than these. I love you more than these, and I will never deny you. And that's why Jesus begins his questioning of Peter by asking him very specifically, do you love me more than these? He's bringing Peter's recollection back to that fateful night when Peter's ugly, prideful arrogance was swollen to massive proportions. Do you love me more than these, Peter? He's forcing Peter to recognize his own sin. And look at Peter's response. He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Notice what Peter doesn't say this time. He doesn't say, you know I love you more than these. He doesn't do that. Peter finally realizes that the issue isn't comparing himself to others. Uh, That that was a smokescreen for the real issue. The real issue is his own relationship with Jesus. And so he simply says, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus asked a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus pushes and asks Peter a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? There is no doubt what John wants us to recall as he records this incident. John wants our mind to go back to Peter's threefold denial of Jesus around that charcoal fire just days before. And Peter's mind surely goes there as well. As you can see in Peter's response in verse 17, Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Friends, 
Restoration always involves the painful process of getting back to where you started with Jesus. And, and honestly, you, you really wouldn't want it any other way. You wouldn't want a, a quick, cheap, shallow, outward restoration. You would want to be sure that Jesus was really doing deep, intense, transforming work on your heart. Beware of people who just quickly and flippantly mouth off, yeah, yeah, I said I'm sorry, so can we just get over this and move on with our lives? Beware of yourself when you're like that. It may be evidence that you are rushing the process, that you are rushing the surgeon who wants to cut out that cancerous sin out of your heart. Peter here grieves. He's very sad. He knows why Jesus has questioned him three times, because he denied Jesus three times. And as difficult as this is for Peter, Jesus is doing a wonderful thing. He, he is bringing to mind those three denials, not to punish Peter, but to give him a beautiful opportunity to repent. The opportunity to start again, to change course, to renounce chapter 18, to turn from rejecting Jesus and to, and to return to, and turn back to receiving Jesus. That's exactly what repentance is. And so now the threefold denial is replaced by a threefold affirmation. And Peter's not simply forgiven, but fully restored. Now, Peter's threefold affirmation of his love for Jesus is met with three, Jesus' threefold restoration to service. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Who are Jesus' sheep? They're believers. Serve the flock, Peter. Guard the sheep. Feed my lambs with the word of God. Go out and, and, and preach the, the, the gospel to, 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 to lost people out there that they may come into the sheepfold as well. Peter may have thought that his failure would close the door on his ministry, but what he comes to learn is that his repentance flings the door for service wide open because God is not looking for perfect people to serve him. He's looking for broken people to serve him and people who know that they're broken have the humility to get to that broken place. Uh, there may be some of you who feel unqualified and, and too messed up to serve God in any meaningful way. I'm pretty sure that's the case. I'm pretty sure that some of you feel that way, just in a room of this size. It's a common thing. It's a common issue. Can't be used by God. Can't, I'm, I'm washed up. It's over. I have no ministry value for the kingdom. Many people feel that way. But you know, we can all identify with Peter because every time... You sin, and every time I sin, it is a denial of Jesus. It's a way of saying, I don't trust Jesus. I really don't believe His path for me is better than the one I'm going, uh, going down, and, and, and I believe that the sin that I'm going to commit is the better path. I don't really believe that He's everything I need. Instead, I need this sin, this path, this other solution. Essentially, that's a denial of Christ and His sufficiency in your life. And so, isn't it so good to see Peter's restoration here? Jesus did not say, you've messed up, and so I can't use you anymore. That's what we expect to hear from him. And Jesus isn't sitting around uh, about to say, oh, okay, now you're perfect. Now I can use you. Congratulations. 
Instead, he's saying, yes, now you're broken, now you're humble, now you're grieved over your sin, now you're not comparing yourself to others, thinking you're more righteous than them, now you're truly repentant. Now, now I can use you. Let's get to work. That's what Jesus wanted from Peter. And when he, tur- and when he, sees, and when he sees that, Jesus turns to him and says, feed my lambs. And then finally, Jesus gives to Peter words that ultimately, that, that are simultaneously bitter and sweet. Uh, verse 18 Truly I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you and where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. The stretching out of the hands was a euphemism for crucifixion. That will be the end of the road for Peter in this life. He will be a martyr for Jesus. And while certainly there is bitterness to that prophecy, there is also sweetness to it. There is something there in that prophecy that would have deeply encouraged Peter. You're thinking, what's so encouraging about you're going to be crucified? Jesus is telling Peter, yes, you have fallen. Yes, you have failed. And yes, there may be times ahead where you will waver, where you will lack courage, where you will stumble. But Peter, guess what? You're going to make it. You're going to make it. You will persevere. You will be victorious in the end. And while you may have dishonored me by your denial, guess what? you will even more glorify me by giving up your life for me, Peter. You'll make it to the end. You'll be faithful to the end. My sheep hear my voice, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. You, Peter, will show the world my supreme value and my ultimate worth, you will put on display the treasure that I am to you, Peter, because you will show the world that I am worth your very life. Indeed, Peter, you do love me, and you will love me, despite failing to do so. Verse 19, and after saying this, he said to him, follow me. A little later in verse 21, Peter sees John and says, well, what about him? And Jesus says, never, never you mind him. You follow me. <clears throat> Keep your eyes fixed on me. Uh, don't, don't worry about him. That's, that's kind of what got us into trouble in the first place, right? That, that, that night, comparing yourself to other people, worried about other people and what they're doing and all of that. Just stay fixed on me, Peter. You know, Jesus' dealings with Peter speak a word to all Christ deniers like you and me. Some of you in this room may be stuck in your own past sins, stuck in guilt, stuck in what happened yesterday, haunted by what you did 15 years ago, and you're just in some sort of spiritual holding pattern. You feel stuck. Friends, Jesus didn't want Peter to stay there, 
and he doesn't want you to stay there. It's time for you to let Jesus, as that great spiritual surgeon, do the heart work that is necessary. He's not looking for you to be perfect. He's looking for you to be humble and broken and contrite in spirit. And if you're broken before God, if you're humble and repentant, Jesus' message for Peter is really a message for you because he says to you in the Gospel of Luke, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You will probably not glorify God through being literally fastened to a cross like Peter was. Instead, your path to glorify God will involve a daily denial, a daily dying, where you once denied Christ, you now deny those things in your life that are contrary to Christ and His purposes, and you die to those things. You learn, with God's help, to die to your anger, die to your greed, to your lust, to your pride, to your gossiping, to your self-centeredness, to your craving of material comfort over Christ. And as Peter glorifies God by enduring a literal crucifixion, you will glorify God daily by crucifying sinful passions and desires. And through that crucifixion lifestyle, you will show the world that seeing and savoring Jesus Christ is by far superior to any earthly pleasure and any worldly treasure. Because as you walk in that crucifixion lifestyle, it puts not you on display, but Christ. Because you're telling, you're telling the world that the things that they bank on, that they bank their hopes on for satisfaction and life, is not the things that you're ultimately banking your hopes on. And as God helped Peter to persevere and endure to the end to help Peter be faithful in bearing his cross, so God will help you bear yours. That's right. Praise the Lord. If you're here this morning as a failed believer, and you are discouraged and you wonder how God could ever work through somebody like you, the brokenness that you feel right now is the beginning of your restoration. And that humble, repentant attitude is the number one qualification that God seeks. So take heart in that and be encouraged. Because ultimately, God's acceptance of you does not have to do with how good you are or how well you perform. It has everything to do with what Jesus did for you. You see, this beautiful restoration that we see in chapter 21, it would have been absolutely impossible if chapters 19 and 20 didn't happen. If 19 and 20 didn't happen, we might as well rip 21 out of the book also, because chapters 19 and 20 show us the death and resurrection of Christ, and that becomes the basis for our relationship with God and His acceptance of us in the first place. The reason why these, these disciples, the reason why Peter, the reason why you and I can enjoy the forgiveness and restoration from God is, is because Jesus suffered and bled and died on a cross for all of our Christ-denying sins. 
He took the punishment for those things upon himself. And when we receive Jesus by faith, Jesus doesn't say, do good things and be forgiven. Jesus says to the believer, when we put our trust in him, he says, you are already forgiven. Now follow me into the life that I have for you. Follow me. And that's great news. Whether you are a failed disciple or an unbeliever who for the first time you're beginning to realize your need to Christ and faith is awakening in your heart too. Today is the day to look to the cross. Whether you're a believer or unbeliever, today is the day to look to the cross. Today is the day to place your hope in His finished work and, and embrace the deep work that He wants to do in your heart and begin to enjoy a restored relationship with Him starting right now. I hope you'll trust in him. I hope you'll receive him because there is, there is nothing else in this world that is as good and wonderful and satisfying and necessary for your life than seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. Let's pray.